Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Every Square Inch. My name is Robert Cunningham, and we are doing a series of podcasts as a follow-up to a conference that I led on human sexuality and gender. Essentially, I uh, delivered a Protestant version of uh, John Paul II's uh, Theology of the Body. Uh, But I'm going to take a break from that to record my thoughts on the monumental Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. Um, When Dobbs was before the court, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health was before the court, I foresaw that this would prove to be the most significant challenge that Roe v. Wade had ever faced. And so I did use it as an opportunity to outline my case for the pro-life position. So that's not what I'm going to do here. If you would like to hear my reasons for being pro-life, you can go back and listen to that podcast. Instead, with this podcast, I want to discuss pro-life advocacy post Roe v. Wade. Uh, But I will say this first. This isn't as much of a break from my discussion on theology of the body as you might assume. In fact, I would argue theology of the body is... um, an important counter to the most common ethical argument for abortion, we who are pro-life tend to focus on the humanity of the unborn, as well we should. That's the most significant ethical issue at stake when it comes to abortion. But we have to understand that those who disagree with us don't think in those categories. What is paramount to the pro-choice argument is not the humanity of the child but the humanity of the mother. Well, what theology of the body gives us is an argument against abortion according to the humanity of the mother. So you know the line, my body, my choice. Well, let's consider that statement according to a theology of the female body, which we've been discussing. The idea, of course, is that a woman should have autonomy over her body, and since the child is a part of her body, she must have the right to choose termination. Now, at some point, the vast majority of people, even the majority of pro-choice advocates, recognize that that line of reasoning is not sustainable all the way through pregnancy. When you look at support for first trimester abortion versus third trimester abortion, the numbers are radically different. So nearly everyone agrees that at some point, my body, my choice falls apart because you are dealing with two bodies that have human rights. But that aside, let's just consider my body, my choice through the lens of uh, theology of the body. As you might recall, the uniqueness of the body's reproductive systems is at the center of theology of the body. It's, It's the sexual differences that unlocks the mystery and glory of God's design for erotic love. Well, consider the uniqueness of the female uterus. Every major organ in the female body exists to sustain the life of that woman's body, with one exception, her uterus. Women can have a hysterectomy and continue on just fine because the uterus is not necessary to the life of the female body. You can't remove the brain, the heart, the lungs, but you can remove the uterus and continue on just fine. So then what's the uterus there for? The uterus is the only part of the female body that exists not for the life of that body, but for the life of another body. That is to say, the uterus is the only selfless organ in a female body, functioning exclusively for 
another human being. In fact, the uterus demands a form of uh, sacrificial selflessness from the entire female body. The moment another life is conceived in the uterus, the rest of the body goes through a painful, sacrificial nine-month journey to support the work of the uterus. Now, when my body, my choice is invoked, it's actually not in reference to the body, but to the uterus. More specifically, it's my uterus, my choice. But the ethical dilemma we face is that the uterus is the only part of the body that does not exist for, quote, my body, but for another body. The womb is this unique, sacred home within the female body designed not to give and sustain its own life, but to give and sustain another's life. And so to view a pregnancy as parasitic is a fallacy. So like cancerous cells or, or a parasite, something within the body, attacking the body, threatening the functional order of the body, should and must be terminated and removed because it is preventing the body from doing what it was designed to do. But when we invade the uterus to terminate and remove a pregnancy, you're doing the opposite. You are preventing the body from doing what it was designed to do because you are dealing with the only part of the female body that exists not for the life of that body, but for the life of another body. The female body recognizes that its uterus in some way belongs to another. That's its purpose. So removing life from the womb is akin to removing air from the lungs, blood from the heart, and so forth. So yes, we are still within the realm of our podcast discussion on theology of the body. Now, I completely understand that many people couldn't care less about what theology of the body says to the abortion debate. I understand that. But for those who do care, I just wanted to demonstrate how this theology offers a unique protest against abortion, not just because of the humanity of the unborn, but also the humanity of the mother. But let me get to my main focus here. Now what is the question I want to ask in this podcast? I am on record criticizing the disproportionate focus pro-life advocacy has had on Roe v. Wade. And I'm very happy I was proven wrong in my skepticism over the possibility of it ever being overturned. Of course, I'm thrilled to be wrong there because of its implications on abortion, but also its implications on the pro-life cause itself. Now that Roe is no more, pro-life Christians are forced to reframe the cause, giving focus to what I believe should have been our primary focus all along, mercy and justice on a localized level. So I don't want to assume that everyone understands the implications of Roe v. Wade being overturned. It does not in any way make abortion illegal in America. What it does is hand the abortion decision back to the states. And so first and foremost, the way forward for the pro-life cause is a localized strategy. This gets me very excited. I am so tired of Christians obsessing over the clickbait theater of federal politics, when in reality, true social change happens on a local and state level. 
And a benefit of this decision is that it's going to force us to strategize in a way we always should have been strategizing locally. Now, I would urge Christians listening in from other states to think about what this means for where God has you. Perhaps you are in a progressive state where abortion will be strongly protected. Your work is going to look different than my work here in Kentucky, which is, I think, sure to be one of the roughly 26 states that will severely restrict abortions. So this may look different for you, but as I've always done in this podcast, I'm directing my thoughts toward the Commonwealth of Kentucky where God has me. And here is my dream for Kentucky, a dream I'm going to labor to see become a reality. My hope is that we will become a sanctuary state for unwanted pregnancies. We will not terminate the child in the womb, but if you need help, Kentucky is where you will find it, a commonwealth refuge known for its care of the vulnerable. Let me get more specific there. This, I believe, is what Kentucky will be facing post-Roe. The decision will disproportionately impact the most vulnerable in our state. Christian scholars speak of the quartet of the vulnerable. So throughout Scripture, there are four groups that are singled out as those who deserve special attention, love, care, mercy, and so forth from God's people. Here are the four. The poor, and that's the material poor and outcast of society. Uh, The widow, the orphan, and the immigrant. God has a heart for this quartet. God identifies with this quartet, and God demands that this quartet of the vulnerable holds prominence within the mission of God's people. Well, the restriction of abortion access is going to create a crisis within this quartet specifically. That's not to imply that these communities are not already in crisis. They certainly are. But the crisis will soon be exacerbated in significant ways. Now, let me be clear, crystal clear here. I prefer this crisis to the crisis of abortion. I prefer the crisis of caring for unwanted children more than taking the life of unwanted children. But yes, Kentucky is on the threshold of statewide desperation among our most vulnerable populations. And there's a simple reason for this. Those with means will be able to seek abortions in Illinois to the west and Virginia to the east, which are sure to protect abortion access. But the vulnerable are less likely to have that option. And so this social dynamic is only going to intensify the needs within the quartet of the vulnerable in our state. The poor will become poor. Widows, and I'm including single moms in that category, widows will increase, orphans will increase, and immigrants and refugees will feel more hopeless than they already do. So, pro-life Christians in Kentucky, what are you going to do about it? Because let me be clear, God expects us to do something about it. So fierce is that expectation that our very judgment day, according to Jesus, will evaluate what we did in this area specifically. I believe in salvation by grace, through faith, apart from works. Your good deeds cannot save you. But what's interesting is that when Jesus describes his judgment day, he doesn't ask, do you have faith in me? Instead, he evaluates our good deeds for evidence of our faith. He examines our life, 
to see whether our faith in Jesus is alive and active. And the fruit of that faith is found in our love and care for the least among us. Why? Because he says, whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. Jesus identifies himself with the vulnerable. So, do you love Jesus? The Christian says, yes, of course. Well, if so, you will love the vulnerable that Jesus identifies with. More than anywhere else, that's where your love for Jesus finds its expression. And this is what the Christian church has been known for throughout its history, caring for those the world does not care about, but Jesus does. We are the ones who listen to the cry of the poor, who welcome the outcasts, who free the oppressed, who care for widowed and orphaned. We are called to be the ones who do not forget the ones who tend to be forgotten. And what gets me excited about the court's decision outside the obvious implications of protecting life is that in many ways it's going to force us to return to the basics of Christian mercy, or at least it should. It is an unfair talking point, people like to throw at evangelicals, that we are merely pro-birth and not pro-life. That's simply untrue. Statistically speaking, nobody gives their time, energy, and resources toward adoption, foster care, uh, single mothers, and so forth, more than evangelical Christians. But listen, our measuring stick must never be outperforming a society that gives lip service to the poor while neglecting the poor. Our measuring stick must be Jesus and his unrelenting prioritization of the vulnerable. Now, progressives will say, if we care for the vulnerable, then we would support policies that benefit them. And that is a fair critique. But I think I know the conservative answer to that critique. The government is woefully inefficient and ineffective at caring for society's most vulnerable. That should be done on a private level. And I agree. But if I agree, then I better get to work, right? See, I don't, I don't know if you've noticed, but those who are against abortion tend to also be those against big government. Those two seem to go hand in hand, politically speaking. Well, if we are not prepared to step up and meet the needs of society, then we have no right to complain when the government has to step in and try to address what we neglect. So, Kentucky evangelicals, now more than ever, let's get to work. But what does that work look like? It feels so overwhelming, doesn't it? Well, again, that work gets less overwhelming when we localize it. My singular focus is going to be Kentucky. That's where God has me. This is my community. Kentucky is the focus of my compassion. And I encourage you to do the same where he has you. But within this localized focus, I want to argue that there are two things pro-life advocacy needs to adopt if we are going to meet the needs of the vulnerable. Collaboration and creativity. So first, collaboration. I did an interview last week with our local news station discussing much of what I'm saying in this podcast. But they included about 30 seconds of what was a 15-20 minute conversation. And one of the things I discussed that wasn't included was the collaborative nature of justice. So MLK was a brilliant leader. But what doesn't get discussed enough about his leadership is the way he built, organized, and strategized broad coalitions 
toward the singular focus of civil rights. And I mean broad. He was a Baptist, but he knew the task was way too big for Baptists alone to handle. So he was willing to work with anyone who was willing to fight his cause. And these partnerships were organized and very strategic. That's what I mean when I speak of the collaborative nature of justice. There are so many churches, nonprofits, religious and non-religious organizations, public and private funding. There's so much amazing work being done in our state. But to use an analogy that Kentuckians will understand, if Coach Cal has an entire roster full of five-star recruits that are not together, organized, strategically focused, and so forth, it's not going to work no matter how much talent you have. What needs to happen for Kentucky to be a pro-life sanctuary for the vulnerable is collaboration. And as an aside, my pastoral work is going to be changing in the near future. And this collaboration within Kentucky is one of the things I'm going to be focused on. Okay, the second thing that needs to happen is creativity. Again, pro-life justice has been predominantly focused on overturning Roe. And that has happened. Now, on the other side, it's time to get more creative with our advocacy. And here's where I think the rising generation comes into play. It is past time for the pro-life movement to be handed to the next generation of leadership. It needs a reimagination, a rebranding, a reframing. It needs the creative ingenuity of our youth. There is a real generational divide within pro-life advocacy. I've noticed a hesitancy among younger pro-lifers to identify themselves with the movement, not necessarily because they don't agree with the cause they do, but because they don't agree with the ethos and the politicization and the partisanship of the cause. It feels to them, speaking candidly, like boomer fundamentalism, and they don't want to be associated with that. But my challenge to the younger among us is to be the change. Don't give up on the cause. Claim the cause as your own. We need you. So let me give you a few examples to help you see what I mean here. Let me give you a few examples from conversations I've had that will show you how differently the younger among us approach this issue. I once spoke with a young, ambitious entrepreneur that um, he, he was making a lot of money very young age. But he told me he was dreaming of creating an empire of free women's health care clinics in underprivileged communities as a market rival to Planned Parenthood that offered everything Planned Parenthood offers with far more excellence minus abortion services, something far more robust than a crisis pregnancy center is able to offer. I once spoke with an app developer who had the idea of an app that connected women in crisis to immediate help, essentially an app that organized that broader collaboration that I spoke of earlier. I was in Washington one time, and I spoke with a Gen Z advocate who said pro-life suffers from a branding and marketing problem, that what it needs is a clear, unifying, winsome, compelling theme, much like, for example, the End It movement. Um, where they, there was the red X that they, um, that they marketed against human trafficking or the one campaign against global poverty. 
These are the types of things I'm talking about. Kentucky needs young justice warriors in the best sense who are far more creative than people like me to use that creativity for the vulnerable in our state. Make it cool. Make it trend to care for the most vulnerable and use that amazing imaginative zeal to figure out how to do that well. So if you were to ask me what the new frontier of pro-life advocacy looks like post-Roe, that's my answer. The end of Roe v. Wade is only the beginning, and it's the beginning of this, a localized state-by-state focus on care for the vulnerable that is going to require collaborative and creative work. And I, for one, am excited to get to work, and I hope you will join me. Specifically, if you're in Kentucky, I hope you will join me. All right. Thanks for listening. I do still have a couple more podcasts I want to record um, on sexuality, but I'm going to take a couple weeks off here for dissertation research and vacation, and I'll return, Lord willing, toward the end of July for another episode of Every Square Inch. (music) 